I'm Hamza Yassin. Welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and a home to stories about birds. Sponsored by birding optic specialist Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. Birding's not for everybody, and in the case of my brother's wife, she absolutely hates birds. She's got a fear of them. But thankfully I've managed to rub off on my nieces and nephews, and they can take me on a walk and show me a few of the birds, or point out and say, seagull. And I have to then come in and kind of tell them there's no such thing as a seagull. It's actually a herring girl or a blackback girl. And But to me, that's kind of nice to be able to teach them that, and even though their mother's not into it and none of my family are, they are enjoying it, they're getting out there and birding. So I wanted to speak to a few friends and family and people who have birding in their family. Burden is often a solitary activity, but more so nowadays, especially after lockdown, people started birding as a family. They found the joys of being outdoors together and following the life cycle of birds. I know a lot of people listen to get birding with their families and I wanted to speak to one of the listeners, uh, Rachel Ball, uh, talking to her about her daughter Hope and how they go through life birding as a family. Good morning and thank you for joining. How have you been? Great, thank you. Really good. I've dropped my daughter off at school this morning. The sun is shining and I have the house to myself for a couple of hours, which is great. Amazing. How old is your daughter? She's just turned 10 last month. She is adopted and she's got some additional needs. So she presents as a bit younger than she actually is. Hope has sensory processing disorder. So everything is brighter for her, louder for her. And she takes a little bit more time to process the world around her. But obviously, there's no pressure when we're out birding, especially when it's just the three of us. We will go out and she will often be the first one to spot a bird. She is amazing at anything on a tree, a nuthatch or a tree creeper. She's usually the first one to see it. But she's really starting to tune into the sounds as well. I mean, she she can identify a kingfisher now if we're down. We live near Virginia Water Lake and uh, we have a number of kingfishers down there. And if we go early evening, she can tune in. She'll be like, I've heard the kingfisher. I think it's that way. And we will go zipping off and try and find it. And the sense of achievement for someone who doesn't achieve particularly well academically at school, out, out and about, she can achieve all sorts and she can be the first to hear something oh mummy which bird is that i think it's a and she'll she'll give it a good go and oftentimes now she's she's starting to be right and it gives her enormous self-confidence that's amazing so for me i'm severely dyslexic and school was a nightmare but i loved it you know i got on so well with my teachers but the reading and writing was my tough bit you know and they go hamza we know you know this stuff 
were you ill on the exam when that happened? I'm like, no, I thought I did pretty well, you know? But because it's my dyslexia, it brought my grades a lot lower down. But I found that dealing with wildlife or working with wildlife or watching it, I was in my element. So that's really lovely to see that. What her, what are her strong points when she's watching birds? What's her strong points? She's very patient. So she is happy to sit and look probably for longer than a lot of children. And also she's dyspraxic. So she has some balance issues, but she is a workhorse when it comes to walking a long way. She may not go as fast as other children, but she will walk for miles without complaining, which, you know, when you're out trying to find birds, sometimes you've got to go a little bit further than you were expecting. And she will always just go for it because she knows the end result is totally worth it. Yeah. What's it like when all three of you, you, your partner and your daughter are all birding? How does that make you feel? It's great. It's amazing. We were at uh, the Wetlands Trust in Barnes last weekend and we had a superb day. We saw our first wheat ear all together and we sat there. I mean, we must have sat there for at least half an hour watching this bird. She's very confident talking to people as well. She loves meeting new people. So if we're in a hide and somebody's looking at something, she's not afraid to say, oh, what have you seen? and engage someone in a conversation. And it's been really reassuring how many people, even if you think, oh no, this is gonna be some commodity older birder who perhaps you know doesn't want a child in the hide, they will engage with her and maybe show her what's in their scope. And that's, that's really lovely for us to see. It's her confidence, you know, speaking to other people about what she can see and what they can see and what we can hear. Yeah. What's her favourite bird? What are her favourite birds? Loves a kingfisher. Again, I think it's the colour, it's the noise, it's the speed. Um, We're lucky enough that locally to us we can see them fishing and the speed at which they go across the water. They make that almost like a laser pew 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 noise and catch a fish. And I think it's really exhilarating for her. She's she's got all sorts of birds. She likes she enjoys watching the birds in the garden and I think that's such a good gateway for children because they can identify the birds in the garden. And we've been looking this week, we've got some goldfinches in the garden that are just coming into their adult plumage. So where they normally have a redhead, the males have got a bit of an orange do going on at the moment. And she's really interested in that and how the colours are changing over time. That's cool. Like, it's funny you guys are saying uh, kingfishers, it's Hope's favourite bird. Can you believe that I have never seen a kingfisher? I can, because until we really made the effort to all go out birding together, we have probably done that same walk a hundred times without seeing one. I think it's tuning in and to where they might be and then spending a bit of time there. And now we know when and where we've got the best chance of finding one. But no, I can absolutely believe that. And everyone's got bogey birds, haven't they, that they yes. can't find. I can't yes. find a, bull, a bullfinch, Hamza. If you could find me a bullfinch, that would be the best because I cannot find one. Then I go online. I mean, a guest on the podcast last season, Amir Khan, he has them in his garden. And he posts almost every day these bullfinches in the garden. And Hope and I say, how does he get bullfinches in his garden? We've never seen one. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the podcast last year. You're an avid listener aren't you love it absolutely love it because i have a long commute hopes at a special school so i spend about three hours a day in the car 
So it's fantastic for me to load up the podcast and have a listen in the afternoon on the way to go and pick her up. It's just perfect for me. Uh, great length, always a lot of variety. I love the music at the end as well. And so it just fits in really well for me. And the guests have been really interesting. I, um, I loved Sam West um, when he was out and about in the competition to see a gadwall. Because that's the kind of fun thing that my partner and I always have. Little mini competitions, who can see something first. So I'm glad I'm glad we're not the only ones. No, that's true. And this is the thing that I love about uh, listening to the first season of the podcast is I am seeing people, I'm hearing people who are exactly like me, you know. And I'm kind of, I feel every time they say something, I'm like, ooh, ooh, I do that too, you know. And it makes me feel so much happier. It makes me feel quote-unquote normal even though we're not all none of us are normal I mean we're all kind of nature geeks aren't we and, and it's not just birds it's everything I'm interested in when we're out and about I got very overexcited about a caterpillar yesterday um and it's just nice with the podcast community that you can find find your people <laughs> unfortunately it's got such a reputation for kind of old white men and and maybe that's not fair maybe it is a little bit I don't know but it's just nice when you can listen to a wide variety of people and their experiences of birding. Birds are amazing animals they are wonderful parents whether that's the ostrich in the Namib desert where the female leaves the male to incubate all the eggs by himself, or whether that's the wandering albatross. Now, there is a famous, well-known albatross called Wisdom. She is a, a lacent albatross, and she's believed to be over 70 years old. And this year she laid another egg and reared a, a young chick. And to me, that is just absolutely mind-boggling. For a bird to be 70 years old, and still laying eggs that are fertile, and for her to be living healthily and happily. It just shows how amazing these birds are, and how well they cope as a family. What advice would you give families with young children that love birding, or they want to get into birding? What would you give them as an advice? Well, I think the, the best thing is if you're lucky enough to have a garden, or a local green space is to check that out. I mean, your local patch can become fascinating when you actually stop to concentrate. We moved to um, a new area three years ago and we're still finding new things. I mean, last winter, we couldn't believe the number of gold crests in the trees. And that for children is absolutely amazing because the way they fly, they're like little hummingbirds. I think children always really seem to like the really tiny stuff. I don't know if it's a kind of scale thing. Birding in your backyard is is ideal, isn't it? Children feel safe and being local. And they find it amazing what is, you know, two minutes around the corner. We're lucky that we can walk into woodland and walk onto a, a heath from where we live. And we walked into the woods during the first lockdown. And over a span of time, we watched nuthatches um, nesting. And it was absolutely fantastic. Hope loved watching that. And it's watching the progression of the birds, you know, throughout the year. It's being able to connect to what's around you. There's an interesting bit when kids can kind of tune in. So imagine, like, for me, the way I see it is if you're watching the nuthatch 
um, breeding, the kids can kind of come in and see on episode on this episode today, X is going to happen. I think that's such a wonderful thing, don't you? Yes, absolutely. It is. It's almost like an episodic thing, isn't it? When you go out and about and each time it's something slightly different and it, it's really great for their awareness. You know, to, can you describe to me what's happening? What's different this time to what happened last time we were out? We, we were lucky enough. We went to Norfolk on holiday this summer and we went um, on a boat trip with one of the Wildlife Trust volunteers um, on Hickling Broad and he engaged so brilliantly with her and suddenly and nobody no we must have been eight or nine adults on the trip and hope just unfortunately nobody else had brought children along that evening and nobody else noticed five spoonbills fly overhead it was hope who noticed them and for the rest of the trip she was so puffed up because she was actually the one who had looked up everyone else was looking in the reeds but because she'd looked up she'd seen them and luckily we we came across them a little bit later in the evening and we managed to watch them feed and we were talking about how it's different for them feeding with their big spoon bills and how they can get into the mud and it, it's just great I, th I think when they see something a little bit different that's when they get really excited you can go to a zoo or you can go to an animal park but actually something seeing something in its own environment in the wild is is the magic I think they see the world in a different way. I absolutely agree with you. I will go to the same place and hope we'll have her little camera and I'll have my camera and she will take totally different photos to me. And they're fantastic. I mean, going beyond children as well, my cousin has Down syndrome and he is one of the best photographers I know. He takes fantastic pictures of birds. He's been lucky enough to win a number of competitions for MenCap and, and different charities because I think he is just processing things differently and he is seeing something differently to how a traditional photographer might. What is your favourite bird? You know what I'm going to speak up for a really humble little garden bird yes who gets a bit overlooked the dunnock. Little grey and brown jobby. Yeah. Not people don't think the most exciting, but we've had them nesting in our front hedge. We've had them pottering about on the ground in our back garden, and they've got tons of character. And I don't think it's always being the brightest and the showiest bird. It's watching them scuttle about on the floor, and, and that makes it more interesting than just watching a big, bright, bold goldfinch up on my feeder. I'm more interested in where's he going under that bush? What's yeah, he going under there? yeah, um, maybe. Maybe the more overlooked little brown jobs. Another example of family bonds being quite strong uh, in the bird world is the long-tailed tits. They're a beautiful little bird with very dainty beaks. They've got such a beautiful call and that long flowing tail. They fly around in family groups and you often hear them peeping along and if one of them gets in trouble by any chance, the rest of the family doesn't leave and move on. They stay behind and try and help out. And I often find that because if you ever catch one bird in a, a ringer's mist net, you don't tend to find one. You tend to find the whole family group there. It will do us a disservice if we release one at a time as they get ringed. So what we often do 
we wait until all of them have been ringed and the data has been collected and then we release them out as a family group and often you see them all fly off to a tree and sit together and kind of peep to each other and all I can think is they're all chatting to each other saying is everyone here is everyone okay all right let's move on Ava the Osprey was ready to make her start in life. It was cosy curled up inside the egg, but she already longed for adventure. She'd been stuck in that egg for five weeks. Enough was enough. She stretched her wings, tapped at the shell with her sharp beak, and cracked her way out into the big, wide world. Ava looked up lovingly into the eyes of her parents, who had carefully tended to the eggs, keeping them warm and safe in the nest. There are a lot of activities for families out there if you know where to look. And I spoke to someone who organises a really interesting project, Charlotte Levine, at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. So I run a project called Generation Wild, which is quite a new project, and it's a three-year project, and it's specifically around enabling children from sort of disadvantaged areas to have a connection with nature, So those children have an opportunity to come and visit through school. So they come with their schools, they come onto the WWT sites and they follow a whole beautiful storytelling um, experience. They learn all about, they all learn all about a character and through that they do lots of different nature activities. And that project is one that I run. So that's my job is to run that project across seven different WWT sites. And what sort of nature activities do you mean? So unlike um, other projects that we've done in the past, where it's very much about learning about the environment and learning about nature, this is done really, really differently. So the children start off and they have a story read to them at school and they learn about a bird called Ava, who is an osprey. And following on from that, they come to the site and they stumble across a giant bird puppet that is half bird and half girl. So rather than coming and immediately learning things, they hear a story about this bird girl called Ava in landing in a giant, giant nest. And from that, in order to connect with Ava and understand what's happened to her, they realise that they have to do lots of nature activities. And by doing nature activities, the creatures and the wildlife on the wetland site will talk to them and they will then tell Ava a little bit more about them and will trust them. So the idea about this particular project is more than just learning about nature. So I suppose traditionally children have learned about nature in the classroom. So we've read about it. We've been in the classroom. We've had kind of science lessons and said, oh, this is an oak tree. This is a weeping willow tree. This is a kingfisher. And then we recognise actually it's really helpful to learn about nature outside. And children went outside. And that is a great thing. And children went outside and they learned about nature. But what this project does, I think that is really different, is really promote the idea of nature connectedness. So it enables children to feel they're part of nature because all of us are, aren't we? we're part of the natural world and this project is really focusing on that so when the children come and they do the activities they're not learning that this is an oak and this is a weeping willow what they're doing is building things and creating things with their hands so they might be on the floor if they're able to like building a trail for an animal or building a giant nest with any little bits of twigs and things that they can find or they will have an opportunity to just sit and be really quiet and listen to the sounds they can see other times they're guided by a friend who might take them and like close their eyes and touch trees and feel different things so that they can feel the bark, for example, with their, um, their fingers. And that's what's different, I would say, about this project. It's really promoting that connectedness with nature because we know that if children feel connected with nature, 
that it really affects their well-being and they can be happier, they can concentrate more. And also it has a really huge benefit on the um, natural world as well because we want children to grow up really caring about nature and feeling that they're part of it, feeling they've got an emotional connection and then connection and they're really invested in nature and invested in the natural world. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you, Charlotte. Um, my next question is, what is the situation um, in terms of children and young people's access to nature? And is there a problem in that? And are you guys trying to solve that particular problem if there is one? I would say there is a problem. We know that many children have far less access to nature than say I did when I was a child. Um, whether that's due to parents being much more worried about children going outside, whether that's about children being more worried as well and just generally more fearful than they were a long time ago, worried about what might be outside. We know that that's stopped children. We also know that children, for example, spend certain more time on screens than they do outside. There's some research that said that children spend something like 75% less time outside than people who are in prison. So there's a real there's a real shift in um, the kind of priority for children about whether or not they should be outside. And that's not all children, and that's not a kind of universal experience. But we do know that children aren't spending as much time outside as they could, and this would be really beneficial for them. When you're big and strong, their dad said, I'll take you on a journey to a lovely place far south. Your mother and I go there every year. It's a long flight, but the weather's warm, the wetlands are beautiful and the fish are delicious. Ava was bursting with excitement. She couldn't wait. She beat her fledgling wings as hard as she could. Can you tell us a little bit why you needed to create this beautiful half girl, half bird to get kids interacted. What's what's the problem with just one of you guys getting up and speaking? Firstly, I have to, a lot of credit to our creative partners who created this wonderful concept. So, I, so we work with an organisation called Stand and Stare, who are fantastic and had amaz- amazing ideas about how to kind of really bring nature to life with children and with them and my colleagues at WWT they came up with these ideas about thinking that I don't know, children are used to learning and just being told things but they don't necessarily feel something when they're told they, it's not necessarily the best way of learning and children will learn in different ways and they learn through all different mediums and I think what we thought about with this project is that let's give them as many different ways as possible we know that everybody loves a story we know that storytelling is a way that often all of us learn and it really kind of gets our creative juices going Within this project, then, we decided let's try lots of different things. So let's have them have a story at school so they're engaged in the magical um, idea of this bird and what's going on for her. And then when they come to site, they don't know what they're going to see when they're coming on site. They just think they're coming to a WWT site. So they stumble across this bird in a really magical way. They suddenly find this nest. They don't know what it is. And then they watch the puppet come to life. So for that, there's immediately a really magical element to it and something that is very child-centred. So it's not done from an adult's point of view. The character, this bird girl, is a child, and she's a child who is also experiencing some things that are quite challenging. So she's been separated from her parents. She's quite worried. She doesn't really understand what's going on for her. And so there's a way of really engaging with children as well. So the children are having to think, well, what is going on for her? And then she tells them that she's realised that the animals in the forest and in the wetland centre might know what's going on for her. So it immediately gives children an idea of thinking, we want to help you, we want to help, we want to do something. And then they learn that by doing so, the way that they can help her and the way they can do things is by doing these activities. So it's really embedding lots of different 
um, ways that children think and children move and children's creativity is um, fed and being outside and doing nature activities is kind of a whole immersive experience rather than just looking at a screen and rather than just coming into nature, it's mixing it all together. And when they get back to school, they have um, an interactive website they can then go on. So it's giving them the opportunity to do things there. When they go home, all these nature activities are shared with them. They can log on at home if they've got access to a computer at home. So, so the idea is to get lots of different bits of their brain and lots of bits of their kind of minds and their thinking engaged so you tap into something that works for some child because all children might engage in different ways. Tell us a little bit about Ava. Describe what she looks like. So Ava, when she when you first meet Ava, you meet her in a digital storybook and she's an osprey, a giant osprey. So she's a big, big bird and um, you see her as a bird. When she wakes up um, towards the end of the storybook and when you see her in a nest, she doesn't look the same. And you think, she doesn't look a bird anymore. She's half girl and half bird. She's um, got massive wings. She's got black skin and curly, curly hair because um, the bird migrates to West Africa. So we wanted to represent this um, girl as a girl from West Africa. Um, so she's got um, dreads, <laughs> like really curly, like curly, um, curly hair, bits of dreads, but it's not she. Yeah, yeah. And when when the puppet was made, we made sure um, we worked. I think I think the um, puppet maker took her to um, African hairdressers to make sure the hair was right because we wanted. There's something important about having different children represented in nature as well and represented in the creative arts. We're sort of also mindful of thinking a bit about the bit. It's a confusing one because she's a bird and she's a girl. And we were thinking about the idea of this girl, bird, um, Ava, being dual heritage because she spends some of her time in the UK. She spends some of her time living in West Africa because that's what an offspray does. So we were thinking a little bit about how do we make sure that's represented because representation matters. It's important to have children see different characters and for me that's a really I don't know in a nature environment to have our one human character be represented by um, a black West African um, character feels quite important to me because that's not that's not necessarily the norm. I think that's ace that's what I'd love to meet Ava. We would love you to meet Ava too Hamza you have to come sometime and you can definitely meet Ava. Now how can people get involved whether that's parents whether that's teachers uncles aunties how can we get involved? So if your child goes to a school near one of the seven sites and that the school is taking part in the project, which um, all, all schools um, um, adjacent to those kind of near those seven sites where they meet a criteria of like free school meals. If the school is coming, brilliant. Those children will come on site. They'll do the activities. Once they get home, they will be given a login to log onto the website. They'll also be given a free ticket. So they get a ticket from Ava saying, come to our wetlands for free. Um, so the families can then come back with their ticket. It's for two adults and children in the family. And we haven't been specific about how many children there are because families are all made up in different ways. So for some families, you've got one child. For some, you might have children living in different houses. And we well, we, did, we, we didn't want to be specific about that because as, it's, it's important not to do that, I think. So two, so two adults, whatever that means to that family, and the children, whatever that means to that family, have their ticket. They can book online, so they'll be sent a link. They'll be shown how to do it from their school. Book online. And what's really nice is if you book online, you get, when you come on site, you get a special listening device, which is this little wooden basket. And when you come on site, when the children go round with their families to the listening post where the nature activities are, they can touch that basket on site and an animal talks to them and it tells them a quite funny story. So essentially, you take your ticket from the school and you book online. That's how they, how they get involved. And then you carry on online doing those activities. We're also sort of mindful that not everyone has access online, obviously, like some of us do and some of us don't. So for families who don't, 
they need to speak to their school and their school can even potentially book for them. They can print off the activities. And if that's not possible, if they ring up the site that's nearest to them, we can do that for them as well. So if they give us a call and say, I'm one of the Generation Well families, I want to book at Arundel, for example, we can do that for them. If you were a bird, what sort of bird would you be? Well, I have two different birds. Can I have two, Hamza? Can I have two different birds? You can have two. I'll, a special request on your behalf. Yes, you can be two. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be a kingfisher because I, I, I don't know, I just think what was floating along, flying along above those rivers and diving down to get fish looks like lots of fun. And also it's got a very good colour. It's got a good colour and I'm a fan of a lot of different colours. So that would be one. But I would also like to be a woodpecker. I would really like to be a woodpecker. And I'm not specific about which woodpecker. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, is it a green woodpecker, greater spotted, lesser spotted? Probably, if I had to be really pushed, I'd probably say lesser spotted, I think. And I mean, I love a lesser spotted woodpecker. I think they're just fascinating because they behave really differently to other birds. And I watched a video of a woodpecker feeding its woodpecker babies and all of them in the tree, sticking their mouths out. And they, a parent woodpecker feeding them. And I found it highly entertaining. And I think I'd like to be involved in all of that. That looks fun. I want to do that. Amazing. Amazing. That is so cool. Ava flew further than she had ever flown before. Beyond the forest, the river widened and she saw patchwork, ponds and lakes. Perfect fishing waters, she thought, but her brothers were right. There were lots of humans down there too. In between the silvery ponds, she caught sight of something extraordinary. It was the widest, most beautiful nest she had ever seen. And it was empty, and it seemed to be waiting for her. To give you an example of how families can vary into loving birds and not loving birds, my mother once woke me up when I was living with them and still a student. Uh, she woke me up and said to me, Hamza, the big green chicken that you were filming last night is back on the lawn. And I was kind of confused. I said, what, what big green chicken are you on about, Mum? And she said to me, come and have a look and all that kind of stuff. And... Lo and behold, it was the green woodpecker that I was filming the night before. And it just gives you an example of how little knowledge my mum has when it comes to birds. And she knew that I loved them and how much joy I had out of them. So she woke me up just to tell me the big green chicken is on the lawn. In my daily life, I always try and include children in whatever aspect of wildlife that I'm looking at and see how their brain works, try and figure out how they see the world through a child's point of view. And that got me thinking about a gentleman called Charles Foster and I had to talk to him and see how he sees children see the world. Hello, I'm Charles Foster. I'm a passionate naturalist, have been ever since I was a tiny child. Um, I have a particular passion for swifts and other summer migrants and also and increasingly seabirds. And the passion for seabirds is very inconvenient because I live for most of my time in the centre of Oxford. So just about as far from the sea in the UK as it's possible to get. Growing up as a kid in Sheffield, um, I was a passionate naturalist. I was sitting in a field in the summer watching my beloved uh, martins and swallows. And then suddenly amongst them, 
Um, slightly above them, there were these creatures that had a power and a grace and a beauty um, of a sort that I'd never seen. Um, and I rushed back to my bird books to discover they were swifts. And ever since then, I have been rather obsessed with them. I wrote a book um, called The Screaming Sky, in which I try to follow the swifts um, across the world. And that book is full of the statement, I don't know, we don't know, it is a mystery uh, that dot, dot, dot. Swifts take us right to the edge of our understanding of the way the world spins. And they also, because they sort of stitch the north and, hemis- north and southern hemispheres together uh, by their migration, make the world a whole place for us, make a mockery of their national boundaries, which uh, are such absurdities and are, are the cause of so much human misery. They lift us up out of ourselves. They give us a different perspective on uh, the way the world is and the way the world should be. There's lots of politics in my um, adoration of Swifts. Um, There's lots of uh, almost religious ecstasy in my love of Swifts. And you can tell from the way I'm talking excitedly, uh, rather manically about them now, um, that they've, they've got quite a grip on me. The main way that birds fit into my family life is by reminding me all the time that my children are my best teachers. They notice so much more. They're far better intuitive naturalists. They have uh, a clairvoyant connection with lots of the natural world, which uh, I don't have or which I've forgotten. They see little details um, where I turn the natural world into my own treasured abstractions and they they make the world concrete for me they're always pointing up when i'm looking down at the at the pavement entranced by my own problems Um, and of course the birds have generated great family adventures and we can see some birds um, from our windows in our suburban oxford street but mostly um, we've got to get up and get out. And getting up and getting out is generally a very good thing to do. What has made my children um, passionate naturalists is the natural world, despite their father sharing their passion for the natural world. The wild world is naturally intoxicating. Um, it is massively more interesting than looking at a screen or wandering through a shopping mall on a Saturday afternoon. And so all you have to do is put the children in it and lots of things start going right. They stop fighting with one another as soon as they're out in a green place. The civil war, which normally uh, characterises our family life, um, abates for a while. Um, And their eyes and their imaginations and their passion and compassion are focused on these things outside themselves. So I've always been fascinated by the sea because the sea has been the ultimate other. Growing up as a kid, we always uh, lived in inland places. Now I live in an inland place. So the sea has been the place to which we went when we wanted to get out of ourselves. Um, And it's still that way. So I'm really bored with what goes on inside Charles Foster's head um, and getting as far away from Charles Foster's head as possible. Um, 
implies getting as far away from Charles Foster's physical places as possible. And that's the sea. And so seabirds have for a long time represented freedom, um, represented the big journeys, which sitting hunched at my laptop, um, I'm unable to do for a lot of my life. So they do a lot of my traveling, a lot of my fantasizing for me. Just this last summer, we were at Rathlin Island, um, off the coast of Northern Ireland. Um, huge, raucous seabird colonies. It's so unusual to be able to see um, in one sweep of your eye a whole intricate, complex, conversational community. But there you can. It's like being able to see the whole population of the UK in all its uh, entangled uh, complexity there in front of you. Um, and the children um, stood there with their binoculars, completely entranced, trying to work out the individual relationships, um, telling themselves stories about the battle between Guillemot X and Guillemot Y, re-envisaging in their mind's eye the journeys which um, the members of this community took to be there the journeys that they would take when they went out into the sea after the breeding season ended. It's a really good reminder that normally we only use one of our senses, our sight, um, and by using only one of our senses, we're missing out on so much. So yes, seabird colonies remind us that we have noses, which we normally forget. So if we have five senses, I expect we've actually got many more than that, um, and we choose to use only one of them, our sight, we're choosing to ignore 80% of the available data about the world. So no wonder we feel um, ill at home in the world, because we don't understand it. We're not living properly in it. Yeah, seabird colonies can remind us we have more senses um, than we uh, normally remember that we have. Our vision and our cognition are related very tightly to one another. So if I see something out in the world, I, being a big grown-up adult, um, translate it almost immediately into um, my thoughts about uh, that thing, which have very little to do with the thing itself. So I've never seen a tree, because whenever I get visual images of a tree, I translate them immediately into... Charles Foster's thoughts about trees, remembered fragments of poems about trees, remembered physiological facts about trees. Um, but my children don't yet have all those cognitive biases. They see trees, they smell trees, they feel trees. Um, so they're much more in the world as it really is than I am. I live my life most of the time in my own head, which is a um, a very lonely echo chamber full just of my own thoughts. Um, and my children can help me to get out of my own head. I like to think of myself as, of, as having some sort of relationship with individual birds, say... As I'm talking to you from my study in Oxford, I'm looking across the street at uh, a couple of jackdaws which are perched on the roof. One is extrovert, cocky, confident, uh, rather swashbuckling. His mate is 
a retiring, conservative, um, rather fearful creature. But his mate um, often gets the upper hand. You know, it's rather like uh, my big fat Greek wedding. Okay, the, the, the man might be the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head in whatever direction she wants. It seems to be uh, rather like that with these jackdaws. Do these jackdaws have a relationship with me? Well, I hope so. Well, I fling open the windows, um, and they sometimes look in at me. David Abraham, the American naturalist and philosopher, talks about standing on the veranda of his house, um, looking out at the natural world, and then suddenly realising that there are probably a million eyes looking back at him, judging him, appraising him. He feels that as a real moral check. Um, It's good for us as dangerously colonialist humans who see the world as a resource to be exploited, a world that we stride over, to think that the world is judging us, looking in at us critically, um, and for us to wonder what it's making of us. So um, I I like to feel myself um, held to account by those jackdaws across the street. Uh, I am an appalling twitcher. I'm not very good at wing bars and eye stripes. To be honest, I find it quite difficult to appreciate the attraction of that, really because um, the, the whole idea of, of a species is a very mutable one. Now, that was Darwin's great insight. Species change all the time. Now, there's eye stripes, which um, appear in all the books as diagnostic of a particular species, are going to be different um, in a few million years' time. So a, a blink in evolution's eye. So so why I keep telling myself, should we um, get so excited about them now? Um, the really interesting thing about birds for me is the, the, the quest to see the world through their eyes. One of the things that obsesses me is the divided brain of the world, uh, of the bird. Um, you know, a bird is perfectly capable in neurological theory of watching a James Bond movie through its left eye uh, while reading the Pickwick papers um, through its right eye, processing each of those experiences separately in uh, the two halves of its apparently relatively unconnected brain. Um, what would a world perceive like that? process like that be so those are the sorts of things which go through my head when i'm looking at the jackdaws across my street and, and those th- those those thoughts are more interesting to me anyway um, than the than the diagnostic eye stripes the mystery of birds is is not a mystery which is different um in kind from the great mystery of otherness. So the the contents of a bird's head is a mystery. Um, The way in which a bird with uh, a rigorously divided brain perceives the world is a mystery. But so is what my wife and my children and my best friends make of the world. Uh, Otherness itself is a mystery. I hope that my reflections on the lives and the perceptions of birds make me 
reflect more intensely than I otherwise would on my human relationships. I hope, but I doubt, that they make me a slightly less unsatisfactory father, husband, friend. But anything we can do in order to get better at probing the mystery of otherness has to be a good thing. Anything which generates um, empathy has to be a good thing. And um, reflecting on the lives of birds is a good way to to train the, the faculties of inquiring into otherness, a good way of... of of uh, enlarging our empathy muscles. If I had to give you one tip for birding as a family, it will be to have enough food and water for your children to eat and drink and to stay outside as long as possible. For the parents, it will be to use all your senses, your eyes, your ears, your touch, your smell, and to see the world through a child's point of view um, rather than just an adult see it the way that children see the world and if you find a feather pick it up examine it ask your kids from which bird do you think it came from and why did it come off the bird and what happens to the new feathers and what happens to the old feathers really examine the world through a child's point of view I'm looking at the moment at an otter who's been mobbed by a hoodie. Uh, the otter's just gone and got a massive crab, I believe, and it's pulled it up on shore. But the hooded crow is sat probably about one metre away, and the otter's looking at it but still wanting to feed on its food. And the hoodies are such opportunistic pickers. Uh, I don't want to call them hunters because they don't really hunt, but they're kind of like scavengers. But they're not fully scavengers. That's why I call them pickers, because they sit there and pick the leftover of stuff. Um, but clearly the otters are very messy eaters, and this hooded crow is going to be waiting until the otter's finished with its food and then go down and pick up the rest. As it's sitting there, the juvenile herring gull and its parent has just arrived and they're going to come in. They've just come from downwind and they can see the kerfuffle of the hooded crow sitting there. And it's just flushed it off. But this is amazing. You can just hear the baby. I'm going to be quiet a little bit. It's like a whistle but it's a slow, mournful whistle, and it's a, a plea. It's a, please feed me, mother, please feed me. And it's kind of interesting compared to what the adult sounds like. The adult's more bold and um, loud, I would say, whereas the juvenile's more of a quiet, submissive call. Thanks a lot for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure doing this series so far and there's definitely more to come.
If you'd like to hear more opportunities and want to share some of your stories with us, you can follow us on social media at GetBirdingPod. Get Birding is sponsored by Birding Optic Specialist Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance, insuring conservation groups across the UK. Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production.